morning, FCBC. It is great to be here with you all again. My name is Andrew, and last Sunday I kicked off a three-part series on honor and shame. And let's specifically in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, and we looked at the first 10 verses where Jesus tells two parables or two stories about lost things. And the first one that he talks about is the parable of the lost sheep. And the second one is on the lost coin. And today we're going to be continuing on in this theme of lostness as we examine one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture. But we're going to be looking at it from the lens of honor and shame. And before we dive in, I want to begin in a word of prayer. So if you would, please join me as we pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We pray that as we now come to your word and a story that many of us have probably heard so many times in our lives and maybe have read many times, heard sermons on it many times, I pray that you would give us a freshness to this, that you would allow us to hear it with fresh ears and that God, you would speak and minister deeply into our hearts as we examine what your word has to say to us. As we commit our time to you, we thank you, God, for the opportunity to gather in this way even, and worship you, and hear what you have to say to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I mean, now, before we uh, dig in, I think it's important to define what honor and shame is as we talk about honor and shame. And you know, while there's so many definitions, there's tons of definitions out there, all by very well-respected scholars and sociologists and psychologists and anthropologists, all theologists. Here are just a couple of ones that I think capture the essence of these two words. And we're going to start with the word honor, and I'll put it up here on the screen. And I like the one that uh, Jerome H. Nere uh, has in his book, honor and shame in the gospel of Matthew. He defines honor as this. Honor is the worth or value of a person or persons, both in their own eyes and in the eyes of the village, the neighborhood, or the society. And he goes on to say the critical item here is the public nature of respect and reputation. And and you can see as I highlighted here, the, the public nature of the respect and the honor is key. That is not only important that you have honor and respectability and reputation in your own eyes, but what's more important is that the community, the village, the neighborhood, the rest of society views you in such a way. On the other hand, there is this word shame, and, and I thought it'd be helpful to introduce a, a little bit more modern understanding a more current understanding of what shame is. And so um, I, I looked at Brene Brown's uh, book, Daring Greatly, and what she has to say about this complex word in this book. And she defines shame as this way. She says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. And she goes on to say that it's the fear of Disconnection. And when she says disconnection, more specifically, is the fear of being disconnected and isolated or ostracized from others and from the rest of society. And this is so important because for both honor and shame, we see that there's this relational component to it. And this is especially true in the Eastern cultures and especially in Middle Eastern, ancient Middle Eastern cultures where one's societal value and social value and identity are determined largely by the group and by the community. 
And for us, this is important to understand as we now come to this famous parable, the prodigal son, because as I mentioned last week, the Bible's pivotal cultural value is honor and shame. And like most Eastern cultures, the social values of the first century Mediterranean world were built on the priority of the collective group and the actions of the individual. This meant that had the potential to positively or negatively impact the entire group. And so it was expected for individuals to place the reputation of the community above their own personal needs. And this is why shame and honor are so important as you examine this famous story. And so with all that said, let's dive into this parable in Luke chapter 15. And we're going to be starting with verse 11, the word of the Lord. And and he, speaking of Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And so he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey to a far country where he squandered his property in reckless or prodigal living. In verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because there's so much to unpack here in these verses. And first of all, uh, it says that this man had, there was a man that had two sons. And the younger son comes to his father one day and asks for his share of the property or the inheritance that he would have received when his father passed away. Sort of like what you would find in a will, right? And his son basically says to his father, Dad, you know, whatever you were planning to give me when you kicked the bucket, just, you know, go ahead and give that to me right now. I would really appreciate that. And as you would imagine, this was not only considered very disrespectful, it would have been considered scandalous, even criminal, for any son to come to his father with this kind of request. Why? Because it would be the same as saying, Father, I wish you were dead. Or, Father, I wish you would just go ahead and die. And remember, Jesus was living in a culture where Patriarchal honor was highly valued, supremely valued. So imagine, imagine the response of the crowd as they heard what this younger said to his father, to to his father who was the patriarch of the family. It was an act worthy of him being disowned. Not only that, but even receiving the death penalty. In fact, according to Jewish law in Deuteronomy chapter 21, The father should have taken hold of his son, brought him before the elders of the town, and there they would have stoned him to death. And so literally, according to the Mosaic law, this was a criminal act worthy of death. And as you hear that, some of you may be thinking, whoa, 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 wait, wait. But yeah, I mean, what he did was bad, but it's not worthy of being stoned to death. My goodness. And again... I think we respond in this way because we read it through our, our, our current lens. And we don't fully understand the historical and cultural context of the time. But you see, 
this was considered normal back then. And not only was it normal, it was expected for this father to uphold the honor and the reputation of his family by taking this dishonorable son and then stoning him. And as the crowd, especially the Pharisees and teachers of the law, were listening to this, they were all expecting for the father to at the very least reject or disown his son. But it says in verse 12 that he, meaning the father, divided his property between them. That's it. That's all we get. It doesn't say anything about what the father said or how he felt. The father gave his son exactly what he asked for. And as the crowds around Jesus heard this, I'm sure there was this collective gasp. (gasps) What? Why would he do that? And as disrespectful and insulting as it was for his son to make this request, I'm sure it was even more outrageous that the father actually granted it. Because by doing so, he was not only disobeying and disregarding the Old Testament law, he was jeopardizing his own honor, his own standing, and his own reputation within the village and the community. And as I mentioned last week, this was the social currency of the day. It meant everything. You know, as I was um, studying this passage, you know, I came across another great, fascinating resource by Jason George where he retells this parable, but from the perspective and the lens of honor and shame. And I want to share with you because I think it gives us a better idea of the historical and contextual and societal impact of what this father and son did. But it gives it from the perspective of one of the townspeople who was observing everything and hearing what was going on. And this is how Jason George retells it. And I want you to just listen. He says, as news spread around town, a lot of people were pretty upset. I think the younger son started feeling uncomfortable. So what do you think he did? (laughs) No, he didn't try to give the land back to his father. He sold it. I mean, can you imagine selling ancestral land, the very land that God gave to our forefathers? What will his father have to live off of when he grows older? I mean, not only is this disrespectful and inconsiderate, it's against the Jewish law to sell the land before his father died. As you can imagine, trying to sell it made things worse. Each person he tried to sell it to just got angry and they insulted him. The son certainly could not have felt very welcomed here after having done such shameful things. So he took the money and he left town. And so as he read that the son leaves, and it goes on to say in verse 13 that he journeyed to a far country. And whenever this language of a far or foreign country appears in the Bible, it's referring to the land of the Gentiles. And this act of running away was commonly understood as being an act of disobedience and rebellion against God. And it says that in this foreign land, the son ends up squandering all of his wealth on reckless, or in other translations, wild living. And these two words are important because the word squandered here means to scatter something. It means to spread something out in a wide way, which describes what this son did. And that word reckless refers to wasteful, 
living, which is where we get the word prodigal, which means wasteful and extravagant. And this describes how he did it. He was extravagantly spending his wealth. And both of these words together paints this picture of a person who had completely lost his way by indulging in this out-of-control lifestyle that was unsustainable. In other words, what he did was he had allowed his desires to overwhelm and control him, much like those who are addicted to hard narcotics. And at first, it seems like you're the one who is in control. But over time, as it often ends up, the drugs end up consuming your life and to the point where all you can think about is, where am I going to get my next hit? What can I do to get my next hit? And this is essentially what happened with this young man. He allowed his desires to completely consume him. And if that wasn't bad enough, it says that a severe famine arose in that country. And the only job he could find after spending all of his money and squandering it all away was finding was feeding pigs. And according to Jewish law, pigs were considered unclean. This is why even to this day, they're forbidden from eating any pork products. And not only was he taxed with feeding these pigs, it said that he was so hungry that he was tempted to eat some of their food, which would have been unthinkable for any Jewish person to do. And so you could say that he not only squandered all of his money, he had thrown away any social credit that he had left. And in a culture where honor meant everything, he had become completely bankrupt. I mean, he had no money. He had no friends. No, he had no family. And he had no one who was willing to help him. And in order for him to regain any semblance of respect and social status, he needed someone else, a benefactor, to bail him out of the mess that he had made for himself. But the problem was, there was no one he could turn to due to the severity of this famine. And so as a result of this, all this together, he had become financially and relationally and socially bankrupt. So what did he decide to do? Let's continue reading on in verse 17. It says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread but I perish here with hunger. I'll arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So let's picture the scene here. This young man, and some scholars say that he may have even been a teenager at this time, it basically hit rock bottom. He had no money, no friends. No one who was willing to help him. He's got basically nothing left. And at, this, and at this point, and it's at this point where he comes to his senses, literally wakes up, comes to his senses, and comes up with a plan to go back home. Not as a member of the family, but as a hired servant. And he believed that because of what he had done and the shame that he had brought upon himself and his father, that he was no longer worthy to be called his son. And this is interesting because usually the responsibility of the sonning or son or daughter was on the patriarch of the family. 
However, in this case, the son decided to essentially disown himself. And this is an important thing because by doing that, he was basically forfeiting and giving up any rights or claims that he had left as a member of the family. He was giving all of that up. And the way he phrases this by is by first acknowledging the severity and the weight of what he had done. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's how bad I've messed up. And secondly, he says that he is no longer worthy to be called his son. And that word for worthy here is the word axios. And this word refers to the balancing of scales in such that they are equal in weight. And so when we say things in church world, things like, God, you are worthy of all of our honor and all the power and all the glory, we're basically saying that God is fully deserving of these based on the worth or the weightiness of who he is. That it is right for us to give all honor and power and glory because that is according to the weightiness of who he is. And similarly, this son felt that because of what he had done by bringing shame upon himself and his father, that he had forfeited, that he had given up, that he had no longer had any right as a member of the family. So he had given all of that. And his plan was to go back. He says the only way that it would balance it out if I would work as a hired hand. And regarding that job title, Timothy Keller described it this way, and I like the way he says it. He says, these are very specific requests. Servants, normal servants, worked on the estate, and they often lived there. But hired men were various kinds of tradesmen and craftsmen who lived in local villages and earned a wage. The younger son had disgraced his family, and therefore the whole community. And so the younger son was dead to them, as the father describes it. In other words, he didn't even consider himself worthy of being a servant, a common servant because of what he had done. And so he chose an even lower position as a hired laborer, which was at the very bottom of the workforce. And from an honor and shame perspective, again, he had hit rock bottom. And at this point, he wasn't seeking to reclaim any honor or dignity or respect or worth among the community. At this point, he was simply looking to survive. And so he resolves to make the long journey back home. And as he was waking, making his way back, it says in verse 20, that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran, and embraced him, and kissed him. And the father said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hands, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead, and is alive, he was lost, and it's found. He began to celebrate. Now remember, prior to going back home, 
He had been out in the fields feeding pigs all day. And one of the things that pigs do, and they tend to do, is they like to wallow in their own filth. And so he probably wasn't looking or smelling his best by the time he came into town. Still, how does a father respond after seeing his son? It says that he was moved with compassion. And seeing him while he was still a long way off, meaning that he may have been on the edge of town, looking around, hoping that his son would come back one day. And he says that he, when he saw him, he ran and embraced him. And again, I think Jason George does a great job of retelling the scene from the perspective of the townspeople. And he writes, he said, but all of a sudden, we heard a shout from the other direction. This fa His father was running, yes, running down the street. And we were all shocked. In our culture, men don't run, not because of physical inability, but because of social decorum. Older men wait for others to approach them. Running is for school children, not elders. It was a thing of shame to do so. I mean, just imagine what might be exposed with his robes flying up in the air. But then the father hugged and kissed his filthy son. The son stood there in shock, never having imagined such a response. As you can imagine, that shut us all up. We could not really insult or disown the son if his own father did not. In fact, his father risked humiliating himself to stop us from shaming his son. And so as you picture the scene, you can imagine the son was completely caught off guard by the father's response. Because his plan was to make his way back home fall on his knees and plead his case to just work as a hired servant. But this was something that he had never and that he could never anticipate in his wildest dreams. You know, Daryl Bach um, points out that the expression here embraced him at the end of verse 20 literally means to fall, to collapse upon his neck. And as I think about that, it's sort of like those videos um, online that you see of those soldiers who have been deployed away for a long time and, and them coming back home to surprise their parents. And, you know, those videos, man, they always get to me and they always, you know, make me cry when I see them because I see the reaction of the parents and just how overwhelmed with joy they are at seeing their son or daughter, because this entire time they were wondering whether they were safe or even alive. And just to see the relief and the joy and them just literally falling on the neck of their children and weeping tears of joy. And I imagine that this was the picture. This is the picture that we get of the father who had been waiting and longing for his son to come home. In the moment that he saw his son, he ran to him. And embraced him. And at that moment, it didn't matter that the son had disrespected his father by asking for a share of the inheritance. And it didn't matter in that moment that he had squandered all the family's wealth and the, all the wealth that his family had worked so hard for. It didn't matter the only job that he could find was feeding pigs. 
It didn't matter that he had brought tremendous shame and dishonor on the family and perhaps the rest of the community. None of that mattered. In that moment, the father was so overwhelmed with compassion that he could not help but to embrace and kiss his son. And most likely, this was all happening in public before all the town's people. And as Jason George points out in his retelling, the father had risked humiliating and dishonoring himself for the sake of restoring and reconciling with his son. Yet despite this unexpected response from the father, the son still offers his confession. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can even finish his speech and give his plan, the father interrupts by asking his servants to bring three very specific items. First, he asks them to bring the best robe, which was usually used in very formal attire and usually only by the patriarch of the family. Second, he asks them to place a ring on his finger. And lastly, he asked him to put shoes or sandals on his feet. And all of these items signified to everyone there, including these servants, that the father had publicly and visibly restored him back as an honored son in the family. And not only that, not only this public display, but he asked his servants to go and quickly prepare the fattened calf to celebrate his return. And you have to understand that the fattened calf was very special. And it was usually reserved for very special religious holidays like the Day of Atonement. And so it was reserved for just the most special of occasions. You know, I came across an interesting article um, by Marlene uh, you, Yap, where she examines this parable through the lens of honor and shame. And specifically regarding the fattened calf, she writes this, and I think this is so insightful. She says that a fattened calf was kept for a special occasion and would feed over 100 guests. Since the meat would spoil quickly, it was most profitable that the villagers were invited. We take it as an insult to kill a, a calf and not invite the community. It would also be a waste of resources because the family couldn't eat it all and the rest would go to waste. And here, here's the important thing. And this feast would also serve to reconcile the younger son to the whole community. So what this meant was that not only was the father restoring his place as a member of the family, he was attempting to restore his honor and dignity among the community. You know, I, I had an opportunity this past week to facilitate an online discussion on honor and shame for one of the CNC small groups. And during that time, I, I asked, you know, what is one way that Asian parents typically express their love to their children? Without hesitation, one of them said, food, food. And um, I find this to be so true. Because food, and especially this act of eating together and preparing a meal for the family, is one of the hallmarks of Asian culture. You know, I read another interesting article this past week where uh, the author shared about the importance of dining uh, with his Asian family. 
and he shared how his grandmother would sometimes place food in his bowl. And without his grandmother even saying a word to him, he understood this act as her way of saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. And I bring this up because sharing a meal with others in this culture went way beyond just eating together and being hospitable and having a good time. It signified one's acceptance of that person. And back then, it was important that when you ate with someone to preserve, that in order to preserve or elevate one's honor by eating with people of similar rank or social status. That it was beneficial for you to, to eat with someone who was of the same honor scale, that had the same social credit or even more than you. And remember, at the beginning of this chapter in Luke 15, it says that one of the reasons why these religious leaders, these Pharisees and teachers of the law were so upset with Jesus was because he not only welcomed these sinners, but he ate with them. And likewise, I believe that this image of feasting and celebrating over a meal in honor of this lost son was his way, Jesus' way of saying that he was welcoming and accepting the tax collectors and sinners by sharing in table fellowship with them. And I imagine as Jesus was telling this parable how they must have felt and the joy and the gratitude they must have had at the thought that God would receive and rejoice over them in such a way. And how those whom society had labeled as being shameful and dishonorable would be embraced and accepted by their Heavenly Father. I mean, they had never heard anything like this before. And I just think about how they must have felt as they, as they heard this parable. And how some of them had been yearning and longing so much to return to the arms of their Heavenly Father and to have that relationship restored. But at the same time, they assumed that God would never be able to take them back. Because why would they? They were constantly reminded by society and by these religious elite that God only wanted people, that God didn't want people like them. And they had always been told that he only cared about the godly and the righteous and the honorable. So imagine how these sinners and tax collectors felt when they heard someone whom they considered to be godly and righteous and honorable say, The Father wants you to come in. He's inviting you to come to him. And he's been eagerly waiting and longing for your homecoming day. For some of you who may be watching right now, as you hear that, as you reflect on this story, you identify and you relate with that prodigal son. Because you feel as though you are unworthy and undeserving of God's acceptance and approval. And maybe you feel as though you haven't measured up. Maybe you've assumed that God can't love someone like you. Or it could be that you've been told all along that, that God can't accept and, and approve of someone like you of all the failures and all the mistakes you've made. But you know, that's exactly what this younger son believed. He believed that he was no longer worthy to claim any rights as a member of the family. And he assumed that he could never be welcomed and accepted as a son. And he had disrespected and dishonored his father. 
He has squandered the wealth of the family that he had, that, that had worked so hard for. And he had brought great shame on the family and the community. I mean, what could he even do at this point to make things But you know, the good news is that it wasn't up to the son to earn his place back into the family. And, and, and why is this good news, you may ask? Because as I mentioned last Sunday, in a culture of honor and shame, a shamed person could do very little to nothing to repair the social damage that's been done to their character and their reputation. Correcting that shame requires a sort of remaking, a transformation of the self, and more often than not, a person of higher status must publicly restore the honor of the shame. And we see here that it was not the son who somehow earned or won back his honor and reputation. It was the father who publicly restored honor and dignity and worth to the shameful and dishonorable son. And he did it at the expense of his own honor and his own dignity. And he was willing to be shamed in order to restore his son to be reconciled with him. And friends, the good news is that just like this prodigal son, God desires you to come back to him. It doesn't matter what you've done or haven't done. He's patiently waiting. and He's longing for your homecoming today. All you need to do is simply come and receive. You don't need to make any promises to do this or that to be a better person. You don't have to worry about earning your keep as a child and member of the family. All you need to do is simply come and receive God's unconditional love and forgiveness and grace in Christ. You know, I'm reminded of a story I heard many years ago, and I'm pretty sure I've shared it before with some of you, but it's one of my favorite stories. And it's about a man named uh, Paco and his family and his father. And, and I wanted to share this story with you as we get ready to close because I think it captures the heart of this parable and more importantly, the heart of our Heavenly Father. So if you would, allow me to share this story as we get ready to close. It goes like this. No one could really say why he ran away, or perhaps he didn't but was kicked out of his home by his father for something foolish that he said or did. Either way, Paco found himself wandering the streets of Madrid, Spain, with the grand hopes of entering into a profession that would most likely get him killed. Bullfighting. Those who train under a mentor have a good chance of surviving this profession, but Paco's memory of his mistakes and the guilt over what happened blindly drove him to this one-way street to suicide. But that was the last thing his father wanted, which is why he tried something desperate, which he desperately hoped would work. There was little to no chance he would be able to find Paco by wandering the streets of Madrid. So instead, he put an advertisement in the local newspaper called El Liberal. And the advertisement read, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. Now, you have to understand, what you have to understand is that the name Paco 
is such a common name in Spain that when the father went to the Hotel Montana the next day at noon, there were 800 young men named Paco waiting for their fathers and waiting for the forgiveness that they never thought was possible. Friends, again, God is eagerly waiting and longing for you to come to Him. And all you need to do is simply come and receive His unconditional love, His forgiveness, and His grace. As you reflect on this message and on this parable, my prayer is that wherever you may be in your spiritual walk and in your journey with God, whether you are walking with Him or whether you have drifted away or whether you would say that, man, I don't even know if I believe Him, that wherever you may be, that you would take a step towards Him. And that you would allow Him to then come and meet you, to receive you to rejoice over you because this is what he longs so much to do for you. And that's my hope and prayer for you that wherever you may be, that you would be able to take a step towards him and allow him to receive and rejoice over you. Would you pray with me as you get ready to close? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for this amazing, amazing story. I pray for each person that is listening to this right now, wherever they may be in their faith journey, that God, that you would speak right into their heart. That through what we have learned and heard from your word today, that you would illuminate the parts of our heart where you desire to speak into. And that as you do a work of change and transformation in our heart, as you begin to break down some of the walls that we have built around our heart, that God, that we would have the courage, the humility even, to take that next step towards you. And that God, that you would in turn embrace us, remind us that we are fully loved by you. We are fully accepted, fully welcomed, and that you rejoice over us. We thank you for your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you once again for joining um, and allowing me to come and share. And I look forward to seeing you all.